It's Friday, November 3rd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When it comes to information coming out of and about Gaza, I'm not always sure what it means. Here's a CNN story. Video showed dozens of casualties after incident near Gaza hospital as cause remains unclear. There are dozens of casualties after an incident near Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital, according to multiple videos, and the Hamas-run Palestinian Ministry of Health. Dozens of casualties. I'm not sure what that means. Could mean 24 hurt people, wounded people. How wounded? Don't know. Could mean 100 dead people. Those are very different things. People say casualty and they mean death. But people say casualty and they intentionally mean death and wounded. They don't want you to just take it as only death. But people also say casualty knowing that there's some wiggle room there and that it technically means death and wounded, but they pretty much figure you'll take it and interpret it as deaths. And CNN doesn't help clarify. I'm pretty sure it means innocent people are hurt. Well, of course it does. And that's why when we hear, also according to CNN, quote, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said his government opposes any temporary ceasefire in Gaza unless Hamas frees all the hostages it holds. That we are meant to come to a conclusion, but I'm not sure what that means. Netanyahu has not veered from this line for over a week. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. I'm not sure what that means because today U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was in Israel to advocate for a pause to get relief to refugees, to get refugees out of Gaza, and such a pause was granted in the past. So there won't be a ceasefire, but they will cease firing long enough to help innocent Gazans, or at least they have in the past. And while Blinken was in Israel, he also said this. I've seen images too. Palestinian children, young boys and girls, pulled from the wreckage of buildings. When I see that, when I look into their eyes through the TV screen, I see my own children. How can we not? Hamas doesn't care one second or one iota for the welfare, for the well-being of the Palestinian people. It cynically and monstrously uses them as human shields, putting its commanders in command posts, its weapons and ammunition within or beneath residential buildings, schools, mosques, hospitals. But civilians should not suffer the consequences for its inhumanity and its brutality. I'm not sure what that means. Does it mean don't kill civilians? Clearly not. The U.S. is still supporting the Israel military, which inevitably, their actions inevitably include the killing of civilians. Does it mean don't attack Hamas if they've shielded themselves with civilians, which they do? So let Hamas go if they use this tactic, which is what they do all the time? It seems not to mean that either. So we can't really know what it means. You could say, that's the design. It's purposefully vague, verbal rhetoric to allow maximum damage. I actually think otherwise. I sincerely believe Anthony Blinken is not engaged in providing rhetorical cover for the Israelis to do whatever they want. 
I think he really wants to limit the killing of civilians. Why? Because he's a good guy? Because he's a diplomat? Maybe because he knows that ultimately it will thwart Israel's efforts. I think to an extent, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's not an idiot, knows that too. He knows that when possible, Israel troops should avoid killing civilians so as not to turn the world's somewhat sympathetic response quickly into revulsion. When possible. I don't know what that means. I don't know whenever possible what that exactly means. So they say the fog of war. And by the way, this, what's going on here with this rhetoric and these statements, it's not exactly what they mean by fog of war. What they usually mean is we can't see facts from evidence. But in this war, in this conflict, at this time, the lack of clarity is less about the facts of what are happening and more about to what extent the fallout can or should be avoided. On the show today, you know what? It's been a martial week, a militaristic month. How about a respite? Walt Hickey is out with a fun new book where he marries his methods of data visualization to his inquisitive mind about pop culture. We shall, in this two-part interview, which will take up the rest of the show, bring you the audio version of The Visual Feast. That is the new book, You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything. Walt Hickey up next. indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim and we go somewhere we've never been before not just entertained but somehow reborn together dazzling images on a huge silver screen sound that I can feel somehow heartbreak feels good in a place like this our heroes feel like the best part of us. And stories feel perfect and powerful. Because here, they are. Some journalists work their whole life trying to win a Pulitzer Prize. Walt Hickey won a Pulitzer Prize. I'm not going to say without trying. He works very hard, but he certainly did not expect it. But what the insider senior editor for Data actually spent his whole life doing, I think, is... Sitting in my hands right now, it is his new book, You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything. And among other things, among other projects within the book is mapping out the various battles of Middle Earth and the Avatar world, according to troop movements, and providing us with a graph of the status of all the parents of all the Disney characters, which are dead which are unknown, which were killed during the filming of the movie. Walt Hickey, welcome to The Gist. Mike, thank you so much for having me. So I, how I most interact with you, every once in a while I see you in a bar, but <laughs> you, you write num, Numlock News, which I have to plug. I read it every day. And it's about six stories that are related to numbers, and you usually find them before I even knew about them. You put them in an interesting context, and then almost always you make a joke. And so my question is, was that not enough for you? You had to go <laughs> with the grand theory. You couldn't just be content with making a joke about six number-related stories of the day. 
<laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I love Numlock. I've been doing it for about five years now. I started it when I left 538. And uh, it's really, it's a huge passion of mine. Uh, it's got a bunch of readers and, and people tend to really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned it because I kind of see these projects as very linked. I do too. But tell me how you do. This book really revealed itself to me. It's a book that really wanted to be written because I just kept seeing constantly Time and time again, whether I was the pop culture guy of 538 writing and, and interviewing people who interacted with the movies in some capacity, or whether it was doing this kind of daily digest of numbers on the news, there's just so much evidence. And it's in a lot of different places that the things that we watch make a really big impact on the people that we are, on the society that we are, on the world that we live in. And there hadn't been a synthesis of all of this body of evidence because it's so spread out, whether it's medical research into how watching things affects your body or whether it's sociological research into how movies affect society on a grander scale. And so I really, the reason that I wrote the book was just because it just kept on coming up and I kind of felt the, the, the need at some point to be like, okay, this is a, this is a, this is a project. So somebody's got to do this. Yeah. I think if you ask most people, how does your media consumption affect you or how does your media consumption affect society, they would say, of course it affects society. And their mind would go to the most novel or recent media consumption, you know, Instagram and body image of young women. If you ask most people, okay, what about watching TV and movies, which you do? Does it affect you? They'd say, I'm sure it affects you. All right, then, if you were to say... If you did an experiment where you didn't watch a movie, not in the movies, but any sort of movie for a year, how do you think you'd be different? People would either say, I wouldn't be really be different, or they'd have no way to accurately predict it. And it might not be a year, it might be five years, or another experiment might be, what if I said you could never have watched Animal House, Grease, and, uh, <laughs> and Deep Impact? How do you think you'd be different? They'd almost definitely say, I don't think I'd be different. But I think you prove that they, or at least appreciable number of us, would be different yeah and this is like the, again, the reason that i mentioned that this kept on coming up was like everybody has a story like i interviewed a paleontologist who was like i saw Jurassic park when i was a kid and that all of a sudden got me interested in dinosaurs and then i never let go of it you said you've got a t-rex uh-huh say again <laughs> we have a t-rex wow put your, put your head between your knees <laughs> dr grant my dear dr Sattler. welcome Jurassic Park. And you can see, you know, whether you're looking at a societal scale, like the way that we talked about, whether it was like Walt Disney talking about space flight in the 50s, that actually got people to believe it was possible to put a man on the moon. Or whether you're talking about different fields basically getting a glow up in media, like, you know, uh, Armageddon and asteroid science, you know, we funded that considerably after Deep Impact and Armageddon came out. Right. Uh, it, you just kind of keep or on seeing- Dalmatian maintenance after the- Dalmatians got yeah. extremely- This is one of my favorite, this is one of the original inciting charts of the book that I was like, okay, this is a book, which is that you can literally see a bump immediately after a book about, a movie about a dog comes out. Uh, Lassie gives a ton of Moose to Collies when, when, when Lassie Comes Home comes out. You you see 101 Dalmatians when it gets re-released in the 80s gives a huge pop to Dalmatians, which were not the most popular dog, but then instantly rockets at the top 10 within a few years. And the puppies are here! Oh, the puppies are here! Uh, how, how, how many? Eight! Eight? <laughs> By George Pongo! Eight puppies! <laughs> Ten! Eleven! Eleven? Eleven? 
11 puppies, Bongo Boy. When you're talking about things of the scale, you're talking about, honestly, man, tens of thousands of animals who lie, whose lives were irrevocably changed because they were the ones that got adopted. And, and you can see it in name charts. You can see it in uh, all sorts of different ways that people interact with science and their careers and their world. Um, you can see it in tourism to Japan uh, as they kind of cash the check of the Pokemon generation. New Zealand. Oh my God. What would New Zealand be without Peter Jackson? Uh, people wouldn't go there. It's a, it's an 18 hour flight. And the answer is, is that you see after all the, all the movies come out, the first time you see a bump. And then after the Hobbit movies come out, you see a bigger bump. Far over the misty mountains cold Dungeons deep and caverns old, we must away at break of day to find our long forgotten goal. And so you know, th these things have a, a meaningful impact on how people travel, whether they know it or, or not. So if, if you didn't watch media for a year, would you be changed on the other side? Probably. But the thing is, you're mostly going to miss out. You're going to miss out on the movie that'll change who you are, where you want to go, what you want to see and how you understand it. Yeah. And it's not just uh, certainly movies affect your one's own life trajectory. Um, Jurassic Park was the one that made you want to get into data. But also, I was recently talking to someone who wrote a book about psychiatry, and he wrote about how one or he believes that one flew over the cuckoo's nest was so impactful and laid out the issue in a way that was great in terms of uh, telling a story and drama and nothing to criticize Ken Kesey or the maker, you know, Michael Douglas, the executive producer of that movie and Milos Foreman. But it really did warp our what should have been our considered perceptions about uh, psychiatric hospitals. Yeah. And it's, it seems a little blithe to say, oh, but for that one movie, we'd have a much more responsible attitude because most of the people who are advocating for public policy didn't cite that movie. But when, what insight do most people, most citizens have about it I would say, especially in the 70s, one flew over the cuckoo's nest was the thing that is most readily surfaced in your mind when you talk about psychiatric institutions. So we, if anything, we understate the society shaping power of a lot of these narratives. Yeah. And like, you know, that there's so many examples of that. Like the one that immediately came to mind as well, also from the 70s, was Jaws. Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this shit. Uh, like Peter eventually regretted making the impact that Jaws had on shark populations because this was a species that was being subjected to overfishing, was being bycatch, and they all of a sudden lost a lot of allies in 1975. You're gonna need a bigger boat. And, and so you can kind of see it considerably within like, you know, it's, it's not all naturally positive, but you can see these re reverberations of if this becomes the visual linguistic shorthand, if, right. if this is the way that we can talk about it. If plus, uh, plus, by the way, I just want to inject that tourism on Amity Island went the opposite direction <laughs> yeah, of absolutely. New Zealand. Yeah, listen, the mayor, the mayor did a great job trying to keep those. <laughs> um, it's true. That guy was very civic minded. <laughs> yes. Um, but so 
to your point, like, again, this stuff really means something. Again, you you mentioned Jurassic Park in the introduction to the book. Uh, so I was I majored in mathematics. I was a probability statistics guy. And then I got into journalism afterward. And like the first cool mathematician that I had ever seen on screen was Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park. And without that modeling, without that representation, without that kind of understanding of, oh, this is a career that is an actual job. Um, I don't know if I would have gone with it. I don't know if I necessarily would have felt motivated to, to kind of have that that modeling, right? If it was just a beautiful mind uh, or, or, you know, just the idea of a, of a kooky laboratory guy, like that's that's not necessarily going to get people in seats. And you see it in the sciences a ton with uh, whether it's marine science, whether it's, uh, I mentioned paleontology earlier, like this stuff really has the ability to move the needle, particularly in some of these niche sciences. So lest this interview only uh, talks about the big picture, I want to recommend your book. You get into such minutia as the powers of Spider-Man's villains, <laughs> and you note that most of their powers in some way reflect his actual powers or origin stories. It's great. I talked about Disney characters and if their parents are dead or unknown or uh, if they died during the movie, there's charts about deep impact. You do whole charts on where the drama of different action movies spikes. If commercials make us appreciate TV shows more, there's tons of interesting studies that you yourself either pull from or just conduct on an official or unofficial <laughs> basis. But I want to talk about really big picture stuff because I think uh, I've read, I bet you read, uh, or at least know about the thoughts of Yuval Harari, who essentially says, all we are, are storytelling creatures. We're narrative creatures. So we, as a species, have one way to access narrative for millennia, which is around the campfire. And then with the rise of mass media, it gets more and more available to us. But now it's harder to avoid media than it is to actually seek out media. We are actually inundated with narrative, inundated with stories. And this has to have, if we are storytelling creatures, if we should be homo storius, this has got to have an unbelievably profound effect on us as a species. Do you agree? What do you think some of that effect, just the sheer tonnage of stories is? I think there's a really important question. And one reason that I thought the book is really relevant right now um, which is that, you know, whether you are talking about social media stories and, and basically just whether it's short online videos or just the barriers to entry being reduced uh, to, to actually storytelling, the idea that that we are being bombarded with stories is, I think, just a more significant argument that we need to be aware that what we consume has an effect on us. And for a while, at least when I was growing up, you always had the hell and love joy types being like TV is going to rot your brain. TV is going to drive you nuts. Uh, you know, 40 years before that, people said that about movies. 40 years before that, they said about a radio. Um, the main issue, I think, is that people who don't examine how they consume uh, are potentially setting themselves up for not being happy about how they spent that time. And I think in the social media age, we can talk a lot about, you know, why this is. But when you have an algorithmically driven system, the incentive for the social media service is to keep you on that website as long as necessary, as long as possible and as long as doable. The If you ask Martin Scorsese what his goal is, it's not to keep your butt in the seat for as long as he can. You know, it, it's to tell a story that is that is deliberate, designed, exceedingly well told, and that changes you in the course of the process. And I think that the issue that you're seeing with 
social media is more that people aren't necessarily trusting their attention to people who care about their attention. Um, and I think that you can kind of see this with some of the conversation around AI, where people think that you can just kind of dump a bunch of slop and people will consume it, where I think that people really benefit from consuming things that they care about that were designed with care and, and are just trying to say something rather than just kind of saying noise. So here are some, I agree with that. I agree with, I think though, I worry there are some other effects. One is just because we're bombarded with narrative, narrative is, I've argued that narrative is something of a drug. It's an altered state. It's not real. And narrative relies on a surprise. It relies on um, the outcome you don't expect to happen. And that injects drama and tension. I do believe that when we think about the likely outcomes of things that are high stakes, maybe not in our personal life, but certainly as a polity, we are so much more uh, driven to thinking that some extremely unlikely outcome or explanation is the case just because our we have been habituated to think that way through narrative. So one of the reasons I believe that we embrace conspiracy theory, and we always have as a species, but we're doing it more and more, is that we are in the middle of so many movies and we can occupy ourselves with so many movies and TV shows where the totally wild off the wall explanation is the thing that happened. And also the person who everyone was calling crazy turns out not to be crazy. That's an archetype and it's a much more common archetype in our narrative than in our real life. But when our narrative becomes our real life, it begins to seem more likely than it is. Yeah, I know. I think that there's a very good point there. You know, we can talk about specific I didn't elements. I make it, but somewhere in there, there's... <laughs> yeah, like, but like, <clears throat> I like this a lot because I think that, you know, there's a pretty persuasive argument to be made that we do need a certain, certain amount of narrative and mystery to engage us. And if we don't have enough, and if we don't have something that's satisfying that urge, then we're going to make it up ourselves. And so that there's a, like, you know, a good example from the book, is about violence in movies. I've always been very interested in the impact of it because, the, you know, we know through science that if you show somebody violence, that that agitates them a little bit. It makes them more in a laboratory likely to do something aggressive or, or, or um, do something that could be construed as violent, right? We know that you're able to prime people using imagery from that. And so a lot of times it's stood to reason that, well, we obviously violent movies are just going to prime people up. Obviously violent games are just going to prime people up and make them more prone to violence. This very cool study uh, by this guy, Gordon Dahl and Stefano Della Vigna, um, looked at does this actually happen in the aggregate in the real world by looking at movies when they were released, if they were violent, if they were nonviolent, uh, if they were modestly violent, things like that. And is there an effect that you see after violent movies that people go out and do violent things? And the answer is no. It actually goes down considerably because the idea is if you lock yourself in a, in a movie theater and don't drink for three hours in a row on a Friday, you're considerably less likely to do something violent than the fellow who went to the bar. <laughs> Just, oh, I thought it was, I thought they were going to find the escape valve um, argument of violence, right? So yeah. because we could uh, experience vicariously, we don't have to experience it ourselves. But this argument is so much better. It's like, what leads to violence? Uh, drinking and interacting with people, whereas sitting- Being outside a, after midnight yes, drunk is, is what makes people do violent Sitting in a dark room yes. is definitely suppressive and, to violence. You know, I don't get Enter, into this. sir, the cinema draft house. What do we do with that? Uh, I mean, the Alamo draft house needs to be yes. stopped. It's a national. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so like, you know, and, and like they don't extend it this far. I love that study because obviously I'm a movie guy and I'm interested in the effect of movies. But when you think about video games, what is potentially a better social good than sequestering an impetuous 19 year old? 
away from getting drunk, away from doing something reckless, and just having them play Call of Duty on a Friday night. There's an argument to be made that like these things have bigger effects than we necessarily give them credit for. And to your point about people seeking out narratives, I think that that's good. I think that people need a little bit of mystery in their life. And I think that if you get it from the X-Files instead of QAnon, that's probably a social good. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there is something worthwhile there in kind of producing and, 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 and continuing these kind of stories. And we'll be back with Walt Hickey right after this. So keep listening. To our conversation about you are what you watch. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Walt Hickey is the author of You Are What You Watch. He's a data guru, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he has theories on all genre of film, including as we will get into right now, sci-fi. Why is it dystopian? I have a theory. I do think it primes us, it convinces us towards doomerism. There's a lot of nonfiction in the world that primes us towards doomerism, but whenever we're asked in our narratives to consider the future, the future nine times out of 10 is a dystopian future. What do you think is driving that? This genre element is is so interesting to me because you can look at like, what are people fighting over in action movies? That reveals what they're anxious about, right? Are they anxious about the demise of the US hegemony in the 90s? And so the villains tend to be Russians and uh, people who are getting access to super weapons. Are they, um, you know, is it more abstract uh, of, of kind of the more recent action films? Uh, heist movies are my favorite kind of movie, period, end of sentence. Uh, I one time thought about writing a book all about heist movies. I love heist movies the most. And so when I write about them, I think that heist movies show a critique, are also types of societal critiques. They're, you're, it takes a really interesting mental leap to root for somebody who's doing the first thing that you're told not to do, which is steal. Yeah. And the way that they're able to do that is they morally justify it as here's why society is not organized the way it ought to be and why the people who are doing the crime are, are empathetic. Right. So they become the surrogate for the viewer who is uh, a little upset with society. Danny says, Ocean and his working yeah. class friends have been put out of the job by rich international capital in the form. They're all vicarious Robin Hood. Absolutely. The elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. Any questions? They're not giving to us, but they are giving to us psychologically. And you have this great chart where you break down each yeah, yeah. Each, each heist by the amount of money, the amount of money per person, inflation adjusted is pretty good. It's great. My biggest finding from that was that the, the average per person inflation adjusted take from a heist is $5 million, which is the exact amount of money it would take me to do something fucked up in the basement of a casino. So, <laughs> so it's, it, so, but to your point about dystopia, which I love, um, is I think that much like heists, science fiction is sometimes a critique of, you know, where we are now versus where we ought to be. And the thing about dystopias is that, you know, the good guy's going to take it down. The good guy's going to, through their character, reveal that they possess something, some moral quality that the dystopia lacks and that that is how they will like whether it's through love whether it's through caring about each other whether it's through teaming up whether it's through overcoming bigotry through any of these different ways that we're able to get past these problems um even if you look at something like the martian right which isn't necessarily a dystopia but it's still a problem movie like you can solve you can throw enough science and engineering and and dedicated smart intelligent people at it that you're able to overcome it interstellar is a very similar idea And, and so i think that like the dystopia thing 
is basically just a reflection that maybe things aren't the way that they should be. And if we want to get it there, these are the these are the values, the heroic values that we need to start articulating. Yes, and if anyone hearing this says, "Well, of course that sci-fi is going to be dystopia. What's the right of what's the point of setting a story where everything's great and easy? There's no tension there." Star Trek, uh, one of the more popular sci-fi franchises, is set in a technically utopian future, much more, much better than we are now. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money. You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. But there are still problems in Gene Roddenberry. You know, he was an idealist and he wanted to do that to make the very message that uh, progress is possible and imminent. And it's possible through, like, not force and not might, because the, the and enterprise not the force. is and not the force. <laughs> Whoops! Uh, it's like the enterprise is rarely the most powerful ship in a given fight, right? And the, the, they solve it through intellect, they solve it through peace, they solve it through moral clarity that is possessed by these captains and the folks around them, right? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, like a hundred percent. I think that science fiction is just such a good reflection of like present that it, it makes it really compelling in, in a way that it kind of forces you to take a little step out from the side. I do wonder, and it's not quite a worry, but all this adolescent dystopian fiction from Hunger Games uh, on. I volunteer as tribute. Uh, I believe we have a volunteer. Uh, Mr. Maya. I need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. No. Go find mom. No. Grim, go find mom. I know. No. So sorry. No. Find mom. No. Grimly, go find mom. No. 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 I would bet that the explanation for the popularity of that is almost always just the execution, but it wasn't shaping kids towards being Doomer. It was just, uh, it was successful because there were anxieties and it's a way to channel their anxieties into a less free-floating way to set stories in a place which, you know, it's proper to worry about society as a whole uh, at that time. It's hard to be a teenager, and it's always been hard to be a teenager. And whether it was Star Wars in the 70s, whether it was Harry Potter when I was growing up, whether it was, um, you know, the Hunger Games these days or any of these, uh, it basically articulates that, you know, if you are a teen, you do not, you, you lack agency, you fundamentally lack power. And it is fun to watch people who don't have power grab it and obtain it and, and argue for the moral rightness of that. And it's you can see that a lot in like why for a while superhero fiction was very much intended for teens and, and, and kids because, you know, Superman is a person who is able to, through power, you know, change the world in a way that that he sees fit. And, and that's a thing that kids tend to lack. So you can see one reason that superhero play is so popular among kids. There's this terrific study that I wrote up in the book about this is that it gives them an opportunity to change the world around them, which otherwise they kind of currently lack. So it's, it's an aspirational thing. You love superhero movies, right? I'm fond of them. Yeah, I think that uh, I was a Marvel guy for a while. And then now that the MCU is is. Uh, very popular. Uh, I've been I've been enjoying myself. Do you think that there are any costs to them having become the dominant form of storytelling in our most prestigious form of visual media? I do. I think that those costs are temporary. I think that genres come and go. Um, the the best the the most consistent comparison that I think continues to line up is westerns with um, with superhero films, which is that they became the dominant 
form of storytelling for a while. You can get a lot of butts and seats with Westerns. And then you had a couple inspired Westerns. You had, had filmmakers come in and try to make a really, you know, here's not just a shoot em up. Here's something that really tries to tell something about the human race and the, and the human experience. And those we continue to watch to this day. But, you know, people are going to chase what works. And I don't necessarily begrudge them that. I think the only issue that I have with, the, uh, the the growth of superhero stuff is that it tends to happen to the exclusion of other things. It's not that it's just the thing that's popular and they're still maintaining it. They're kind of cultivating the rest of the garden just to, to, just to grow corn. And, and I think that, that they're going to look back and regret that. Uh, if you look at the libraries of some of these major film studios that were producing a ton of Westerns in the 60s and 70s, uh, well, less less than the 70s, I should say. But either way, in the 60s, you know, you can still look at a lot of other things that they were producing at the time that they were investing in. And I fear that we're going to look back now and, and really kind of regret that we weren't giving budgets and resources to up and coming filmmakers, unless it was, you know, somebody with a gigantic CGI budget and, and, and a rubber suit. So you're, you're kind of a uh, movie slash media utopianist, which is good. You're enthusiastic. It reflects your personality. What about, do you think about or worry about the fact that so many members of the audience are so informed about the meta story behind the story. So I, I I suppose in the 70s, there were people who read, who were very well read about why Francis Ford Coppola was making these choices or what his restrictions were or the story they were trying to tell. Or maybe if you read Fangoria, you understood some of, the, some of that genre. But now I would say there's a large portion of the population that goes and just wants to watch the Avengers kick ass. But there's also, it's very well known that an audience goer will be thinking about, okay, now there were all these Marvel TV shows and they put out these breadcrumbs here. And then there's this character that Sony used to own, but now a different studio has the rights. How are they going to be incorporating them? And they're evaluating the movie on how skilled the execution was the task. How much did the task of the filmmaker, uh, this crafter of this story work things out? I think that that some equivalent of that has always existed. Now I think it's a gigantic portion of the movie going experience. Is that for good or ill? There was a movie that I think kind of uh, got into this a little bit. Did you ever catch the menu? Oh, yes, yes. I have to beg of you one thing. It's just one. Do not eat. Taste. Savor. Relish. Consider every morsel that you place inside your mouth. Be mindful, but do not eat. Our menu is too precious for that. So the menu is kind of about this, right? One of the key characters played by Nicholas Holt is, uh, it, it takes place in the world of food, and he is just obsessed with uh, chefs and, and the foodie kind of scene, but is not himself a chef. And right. you can kind of see that a lot of the movie is a little bit critiquing of that mentality. I don't think that's a healthy way to watch movies. I, I tend to think that the way to enjoy movies the most is to kind of go on the ride that the individual wants to take you on rather than trying to understand the struts and mechanics that hold up that ride. Um, that being said, like, you know, uh, I read a little bit in the book about what, ha like how, why we like things, which I think is a really interesting question of just like, why, what kind of things last, what kind of things hold, what kind of things do well in the popular imagination. And the answer is that people like things for a ton of different reasons. And, and there's really a tough to be prescriptive about why people should like things and enjoy things. If people have that kind of 
magician mind where they want to understand how the person got cut in half. I think that that's a valid pursuit. I worry when that becomes the monoculture around how we watch movies. Um, yes, yes, that's a great phrase to put your finger on. Yeah, that's quickly becoming that, I think. Like, you're allowed to like Penn and Teller's bullshit television show, but if that's every magic show, then it's not magic anymore. It's a technical exercise where you're showing folks how that works. And, and you know, th there are other industries that have dealt with this. Um, a good example, I, I write in the last chapter of the book about, about is about how being creative affects the people who make stuff. And there's two examples that I go into it. Fan fiction is one of them and professional wrestling is the other. And I make the argument that essentially these two fields are mirror images of one another in that fan fiction has really exploded on the internet. It's extremely rewarding for the people who write it from a creative standpoint, as well as a, just a technical standpoint. They become better writers in the process. And if you look at pro wrestling, you've had a, a kind of an industrial consolidation and there's less opportunity for folks to get in the independent scene. There's less innovation going on as a result of this consolidation. But one thing that when I was reporting out the wrestling element of it is that wrestling, there's this idea of a mark and a mark is your classic 10 year old boy who likes John Cena a lot and thinks that every week he gets up there and beats the crap out of the bad guys. He thinks the good guys are good. The bad guys are bad and it's not fake. Uh, and he's never heard the word. And marks are what sells a lot of t-shirts. Those are a key element, but there is another type of person, which is oftentimes what marks grow into. And it, it is apparently many of my friends, uh, because they are called smarks and they are smart marks where they know that this is, you know, an act that they know that is put on, but they're able to kind of take that backseat. They're able to kind of admire it for the, for the portrait and the, and the, and the, and the soap opera and the, and the writing and the, and the, the arcs of what it is. And they see kind of, you know, the struts underneath, you know, the, the, the mat, but at the same time, they're able to appreciate it a little bit more. That being said, there's a reason that the WWE does not acknowledge the smarks and they don't acknowledge that that's the narrative. There's no publication that they produce for smarks. It, it is literally designed. They, they do it very straightforwardly. So I think that, that Hollywood and the movie business could take a little bit of a, a, a leaf out of that book, which is, you know, there, there's a world in which that there's a, a class of, of extremely committed individual who likes this, but like the more that you reveal about this kind of thing, the less you're going to do. My favorite dude right now, uh, I'm on a bit of a kick with him, is uh, Hayao Mizaki from uh, Studio Ghibli in Japan. And he's releasing a new movie this year. It's the first movie since like 10 years. And the only thing that he released was a poster of a weird bird. End of list. That's good. And I'm going to go into that <laughs> film later this year, having only seen a poster of a weird bird. And I'm going to love it. And it, I think that people with a little more stealth restraint will enjoy the things that they watch if they're able to do that. Walt Hickey is Insider's Senior Editor for Data. He also writes the Numlock News Substack, which I subscribe to. He's a 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner. His new book is You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything. Walt Hickey, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Again, very fond of the podcast. It's so good to be back. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.